All right, good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn to John's Gospel, chapter 2. John chapter 2 is where it will be today, and we are starting off a new series today called The Signs. And so what we're going to do this week and over the next six weeks is we're going to be looking at seven key miracles in the earthly ministry of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And before we get to the text, I want to offer a couple of reasons that we, as Christ followers, should want to familiarize ourselves with the miracles of Jesus. One reason is because every miracle, every miracle that Jesus performs in the scriptures, they are all a sign. They point to something. They, they point to someone specifically. They point to Christ. And so the emphasis is really not the miracle itself. The emphasis is Christ, Jesus performing those miracles. And we'll learn more about the significance of that here in just a bit. A second reason that we should want to study the miracles in scriptures are we believe here at Downtown Church that miracles still happen today. There are times in our lives when we find ourselves in moments of desperation, maybe just sheer fear. We don't know what to do next. We're asking God, we're pleading with God, please come. Please do something here. Please intervene. And sometimes you see he just does. He does so in a miraculous way. And so miracles do still happen today. But regardless of whether or not we experience a miracle, we can always have access to the source of the miracle. Amen, church? At this time, we're going to approach God's word together. So with that being said, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? John's gospel, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, reads... On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This morning, we're going, going to break that passage down into three sections. 
in order to better understand the significance of what took place here in this story. And so the first section that we're going to cover this morning has to deal with the problem in the story. And so we're going to call this section, The Wine Runs Out. All right, so weddings in our day, they, they take on all shapes, sizes, and most importantly, budgets, right? And so there are high dollar weddings, right? Uh, I've done some weddings where there was just absolutely no expense spared. Uh, there's also more simple weddings, and I, I remember I did one wedding uh, at a farm next to a blueberry bush under a tree. And so there's, there's all sorts of weddings, but even the fanciest of weddings in our day today really wouldn't hold a candle to a first century Jewish wedding. So here's what a first century Jewish wedding, much like what's taking place here in this story, would typically look like. So the ceremony, the wedding ceremony itself, it would take place in the evening hours, much like what our weddings look like. And then after the wedding ceremony was over, the bride and the groom, they would be escorted and they would be led by torchlight in the evening hours. No streetlights, right? No flashlights, no, no headlights on cars. So a torch leading the way, bride and groom under this canopy, and people are holding the canopy over them. And then there'd be a parade of people behind them, moving from the wedding ceremony all the way to the bride and groom's house. But they didn't take the shortest route possible, like we typically would. Instead, they went the longest route possible, kind of snaking their way through the city and the town. And what they were doing was they were giving everyone a chance to celebrate with them. A chance to just give them a quick word of encouragement. And so they would arrive at their house and there would be this massive party. Kind of like our receptions, except there's a pretty big difference. So when you got to their house and this party that we typically would experience at a reception would be what? three hours, maybe four if it's like a party, right? But if you go to this party, it could last up to one week. Y'all, that's a long reception, okay? One week. And so during that one-week period, friends and family, they, they would come, they would go, and it really was like a party the whole time. There was lots of food. There was dancing. There was singing. There were gifts. There was celebration. There was one feature that was always expected to be at these wedding parties, wine. And that is where this story really begins to take shape. In today's passage, Jesus shows up at one of these weddings that looked a lot like this. And at some point in this wedding, the wine runs out. Now, we might hear that and think, okay, so run to the store. You know, go to Publix, go to Costco, pick up what you need. Well, they couldn't do that. Uh, in order to prepare for something like this, it took lots of planning, lots of preparation, the supplies being there, and it wasn't that simple. But the bigger problem was the social dilemma that is brought about with this lack of wine. So in first century Jewish culture, to run out of wine at the wedding celebration was like a slap on the face to the community. 
And so the family was faced with a situation where there was this breakdown in hospitality. At least that's how it's perceived. And so Jesus and his disciples, and according to Scripture, his mom, Mary, they're all at this wedding. And Mary sees. Mary understands, wait a second, this isn't good. And so she tells Jesus this in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, what comes next is very simply Jesus helps them. He helps them in the midst of this huge public embarrassment. And that's kind in and of itself, but I believe there's more going on here than just Jesus helping this family out of a social dilemma. So let's talk about what is going on here. What, what's under the surface that we might learn from this? Let's talk about wine for a minute. And yes, I realize this is a Baptist church, but just hang with me, all right? Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, wine is not something that is condemned. It's not something that's looked down upon. Actually, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll read time and time again, wine is almost always referred to as a positive thing, as a sign of joy and abundance in someone's life. Look at a couple of scriptures from the Old Testament. Amos chapter 9, verse 14 is up on the screen. Sorry. Uh, I will restore the fortunes of my people, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Okay, so when we read that text, what we're seeing is the act of drinking wine. He's talking, this is God talking to his people. This is not something that is to be condemned. It's actually connected with the blessing of God. Look at Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So what that text is basically saying is that God has blessed the world. That God blesses nature. And then man gets to come into this world and enjoy the bounty of nature. We get to have food from nature and even wine to gladden man's heart. Here's the point. Throughout the Old Testament, wine is symbolic of joy and abundance. Joy and gladness. Okay. There might be some Southern Baptist twitching a little bit right now. So let, let's address the elephant in the room here. All right. I want to speak very clearly here and clarify that the Bible never condones drunkenness. Please hear that clearly. Nowhere in Scripture do you see God being okay with being tipsy or intoxicated. God's not okay with that. In fact, what we are called to be is sober-minded. And you can't be sober-minded on the bottle, can you, right? So that's one aspect of this. I think another is being a Christian in our Southern Bible Belt culture. We need to be cautious. We need to be aware that you could end up causing someone to stumble if you're not careful. So one more clarification. This sermon is actually really not about wine. 
Uh, I know it sounds like it is so far, but there's really a lot more going on here, and I really want that to be the focus. The significance of wine in the Old Testament, once again, the meaning is joy and abundance. And so when you take that meaning of wine and you look at this story in the scriptures, that's when this story begins to become a little bit more three-dimensional for us as followers of Jesus. Let me put it this way. For the guest at that wedding, for that family, the, the wine ran dry that day. And in the same way, there, there might be something that you and I experience where the joy in our life runs dry. Where we've tried everything, where we're just, no matter what we do, we, we feel dry inside. And the joy is gone. Now there's emptiness where we did not used to feel emptiness. And so I'd like to offer a couple of reasons why you might feel empty this morning, why the joy might feel like it's run dry for you. One reason might be because of the emptiness of this world, the emptiness of this world. All right, so this world does have a lot of great things going for it. Y'all, I love food. I do. I confess. I confess that this morning I love food. I love good food. And there's deep dish pizza. Y'all, Geno's East in Chicago. I'm just saying, give it a try. Deep dish pizza. There's steaks. There's all kinds of culinary eats around town here in Mobile that we can enjoy. There's mountains. There's beaches. There's scenery that just seem to explode with color. There's things that we get to experience in this life. Things like friendships that are near and dear to us, like marriages, raising children, things like music and sports and books and movies, and maybe they make you cry, and all the guys can't stand that, but all the girls are like, yes, I need that, you know, the good cry. There's things that we experience in this life that really are good things, that we love about life in this world. But as we've been reminded over the last several weeks in that study in Ecclesiastes, as good as the things are that this world has to offer, if we try to look for that lasting joy in those things, we're we're not going to find it. Every one of them comes up short. And that's what Solomon experienced, right? That's what we learned over and over again throughout that series. Solomon had tried it all. He had the best of the best of the best in this world. And it always came up short. The proverbial wine was lacking and had run dry in Solomon's life when he pursued those things and those things exclusively. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe if you're being really honest, you've been pursuing some things that felt like they were giving you joy. And for a time, they did, but now it's just dry, you know? You you feel a little empty inside. And if that's you, it might be for this reason, that you are experiencing the emptiness of this world. And the solution to that is to go to the source of the winemaker. Go to Jesus, who fills us with joy. Amen? There's another way that the wine can run dry in our lives, and that is the emptiness of religious ritual. 
Uh, So this is a reason or a way that we can experience the joy running dry in our lives. That's maybe not super obvious from the text, but I believe it's there. Look at verse 6 again. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So at this Jewish wedding... Before the guest would eat, there was a ritual that everyone would participate in. There would be these water jars, these large jars, and you would wash your hands a certain way. Now, we hopefully all wash our hands before we eat. At least my kids, you have to tell them, otherwise they will not. But hopefully we wash our hands, but they wash their hands for different reasons, It wasn't for the sake of germs. They didn't really understand all that yet. It was for the sake of being ceremonially clean before God. So in those days, uh, there was a collection of teachings. And they were often called the tradition of the elders. And you'll see these teachings referenced throughout the gospel accounts, specifically with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But uh, these teachings, they were not Scripture. They were not Old Testament writings. And yet, here's what mankind did. Mankind developed these rules, these regulations. And then these rabbis presented these teachings to God's people and said, Thus saith the Lord. And they tried to give these teachings the same weight as Scripture. So these teachings in Jesus' day, they were oral traditions, meaning they weren't written down. Eventually, they were written down. And they were compiled into this book called the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, there was a chapter called Yadam. And in Yadam, which means hands, it's a whole section on how to wash your hands. How to be ceremonially clean. Here's why this is important. In Jesus' day, so many people were trying to make themselves right before God by doing things. We see this through the teachings of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the rabbis of Jesus' day. And so they were trying so hard to make themselves clean before God. And it's almost as if Jesus comes along and then he takes these same stone water jars and he repurposes them. And I believe he's teaching us that he's the one that can make us clean. You're trying, but you can't make yourself clean. There might be some things in our lives, some religious rituals, if you will, some religious routines that we might be trying to do to make ourselves right with God. And don't get me wrong, I think there's actually some healthy practices of some spiritual routines, quiet times, uh, Bible study, uh, singing praises, giving all of that, spiritual disciplines. But you know what? If we're not careful... We can place the emphasis in what we do to be made right with God. As I heard one pastor say years ago, where the law says do, the gospel says done. And so we can come to the message of Christ. We can think about what Christ has done for us, and we can place our faith and trust in that. We will be made clean in Christ. Which brings us to the second part of the story, the second section, which we will call the miracle of Jesus. The miracle of Jesus. Look at verses 3 through 5 together. 
When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother uh, said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Okay, I actually think this is a, a really sweet and funny exchange between Jesus and his mom, Mary. So Mary and Jesus and the disciples are at the wedding, and Mary sees the problem. They've run out of wine. And so Mary approaches Jesus and lets him know, hey, Jesus, look, they don't have any wine. And really what she's saying is, you know, you know what this means. You know how big of a deal this is for this family. And I think Jesus' response is kind of funny. Uh, Look at verse 4. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I just visualize like a mom and son just kind of bantering back and forth a little bit. Like, mom, it's not my time yet. The hour has not yet come. And what Jesus was reminding his mom of was that it was not time for his public ministry to start. It was not time to set into motion those things that would take place leading up to the cross. And I think Mary understood parts of that. I don't think she fully understood everything that Jesus would go through. But nonetheless, here's how Mary responds to that in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Doesn't that sound like a mom? Basically, that's nice, honey. And then she looks over at the disciples, just do whatever he says. He'll, he'll take care of it, you know. Like only a mom could pull that off, especially with the Lord Jesus. And as simple and as sweet as that moment is between Jesus and his mom, I think Mary actually teaches us something. I think she teaches us a model of prayer. Think about what Mary did. Mary identifies the problem. She takes said problem to Jesus. And then she tells Jesus about this problem. She doesn't tell him how to fix it. She doesn't tell him what to do or how to handle it or insist on something. She just says, here it is. And then she says, hey, guys, let's, let's do whatever he says. Let's trust whatever he says. As we go through this series and as we study these miracles, you're going to have opportunities to reflect And maybe as you're hearing some of these stories and thinking about what's going on in the lives of some of these characters in these stories, maybe you see yourself a little bit. Maybe you see something going on in your life. And so here's what we're going to encourage you to do. We're going to encourage you to take that model of prayer. Take whatever's going on in your life, bring it to God, and say, here it is, I trust you. However you want to respond to this, I trust you. That sound like a good plan? Amen. Let's keep going here. Verse 7, we see after this exchange, the miracle takes place. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. All right, so Jesus tells his disciples, hey guys, take those jars They don't need to be used for that right now. Take those away, fill them up with water, and bring them back. And they do. They fill them up to the brim. 
Now look at verse 8. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, let's pause there. All right, so the disciples do as he says. They, they take the jars, fill them up, and at some point, either while the disciples were carrying the water back over to their spot, or maybe when, it was, when they scooped out the water and it was in transit to the master of the feast, at some point, the miracle takes place. Water becomes wine. Y'all, that's a miracle. We can't do that. Okay, we cannot turn water into wine. Mankind with science can't do that. This is an act of God. It was a true miracle. And it wasn't just wine. It was actually really good wine. Uh, Look at verse uh, 9, the latter part, going into verse 10. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Uh, The master of the feast was like, hey, you've been holding out, dude. Where'd this wine come from? So this is what would happen in Bible times. In Bible days, in the days of first century Jewish weddings, they'd bring up the good wine first. And that's when everyone's more critical. And they're kind of got their scorecard like, oh, that's nice. Oh, oh, that's bad. And they kind of grade it, right? Well... They were aware of this in their day, and so what they would do is they'd serve the good wine first, get you a little loose, and then they give you the not-so-good wine, the watered-down wine, if you will. And then the master tastes it, and he's like, whoa, that's the good stuff. Which leads us to the third section, which we're going to call the difference it makes. There's a few ways that this story, this miracle, makes a difference for you and me. First off, we now have access to the joy that lasts. The joy that lasts. Through the years, I've counseled with uh, several people who have said, you know, I I want to be a Christian, but I'm I'm just not ready. I'm not ready to give it up. What do you not want to give up? Well, I don't want to give up my fun. I want to have some fun for a while before I become a Christian. I don't know who needs to hear this, but I hope you do. God wants you to have fun. We'll clarify the fun in a second. He wants you to have fun. He wants you to have joy in this life. He wants you to have joy to the full. And here's the crazy part, guys. Here's the crazy part. The fun comes. The joy comes when you deny yourself. It doesn't make sense. It's like that series paradox we did a while back. But it's true. When we deny ourselves, that's when we are positioned to access the joy only found in Christ. And by the way, the New Testament teaches us that in Christ we have access to not just joy, but abundant joy. And as we also learn in the scriptures, it's not just abundant joy, it's a lasting joy. Let me share with you a text from Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
So my wife and I, we like to talk about the future sometimes. And uh, a dream that we have, something that we would love to do one day, is to get a big RV and drive all around and see the world. Well, as much of the world as you can see in an RV. It's not a boat. We're not that bad at geography. But we want to we see things, right? We want to go travel. Now, do we think that is a lasting joy? It's absolutely not. But can that bring us some joy? I really think it can, and I'd sure like to give it a try. But here's the truth. The joy that Christ offers us, it's so much better than the best road trip. It is so much better than the best food. It is so much better than seeing that, that sunrise. The joy that Christ can bring is so much better than anything that we can drum up or dream up. I do want to clarify, you don't, you don't have to give up the RV, okay? You don't have to give up the traveling or the good food to experience joy in Christ. Let's not make the mistake of trying to find joy in the wrong places. Uh, in his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So this miracle does offer us a joy that lasts. It also reveals and declares the glory of Jesus. Look at the first part of verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. All right, so John in this gospel, he says that this was the first sign of Jesus, the first miracle of Jesus. And if I could chase a quick theological rabbit real quick. So there are other writings out there that claim that that's not the case, that Jesus was doing miracles well before this point. In fact, the Catholic Church has a set of writings called the Apocrypha. And in those apocryphal writings, it teaches that Christ was doing miracles well before this as a child. But John comes along inspired by the Holy Spirit and he pens and records for us. That's not the case. That actually this was the first sign, the first miracle of Jesus. And what does this first miracle reveal about Jesus? Look at verse 11 again. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So you'll notice something in John's gospel when he's talking about the miracles of Jesus. He often uses a word, signs. Uh, when you were walking from the parking lot over to this building this morning, you probably saw a sign that said, downtown church with an arrow pointing to the steeple, and it's there for a reason. It points you to something, right? That's what signs do, and that's what all of these signs, these miracles do. They point us to the manifested glory of Jesus, and I believe Jesus reveals his glory in these moments so that people there around him so that those reading and hearing these words centuries later might realize he's worthy. He is worthy of glory. He is worthy of me living my life for him to the glory of his name. Which last brings us to the invitation to believe. 
the invitation to believe. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Okay, so the disciple, uh, I'm sorry, the signs revealed that this was the manifested glory of Jesus. And here's ultimately why Jesus manifests his glory so that we might believe, so that those seeing the miracles take place might believe, so that those hearing about these miracles centuries later might believe. And that's exactly what those disciples did. They saw what Jesus did, and they marveled. They're like, wow, this guy's not just a rabbi. He's not just a wise man or a wise teacher. This, this is the Messiah. This is the one sent by God. And so the disciples believed. And they followed him so wholeheartedly that they literally gave their last breath telling people about this Messiah, this Jesus. Now, make no mistake, the disciples were not perfect guys. They definitely were not. Even though they believed, sometimes they messed up. Sometimes they doubted. Sometimes they did things that they regretted and were embarrassed of, but ultimately they believed. I believe these miracles were recorded in God's word for a reason, church. Not just so we could have a history book. I believe that they were recorded that we might read it and believe it. As we go through this series, as you go through this week, I hope you're reminded of the fact that we, we believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ and what Christ did on this earth. And praise God, we believe in the Holy Spirit and the fact that he has given us new life. Amen. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to have a time of response. And I would encourage everyone here to respond to the authoritative word of God this morning. Maybe if you're being honest this morning, your joy has run dry. You, you just feel empty. You feel hollow. Maybe you've been going through some spiritual motions, but they haven't had a whole lot of meaning. Maybe your quest for joy is just turning up empty. Lord, I pray for those that are here this morning. Lord, I don't know what's going on in every heart here, but you do. You are keenly aware. Lord, I ask that you might speak to us. Maybe highlight things in our life that are off. Show us if we're pursuing the wrong things looking for joy and Lord I do pray for the brothers and the sisters here in this congregation may we experience abundant joy in you may we experience a joy that lasts despite whatever happens in this life thank you for loving us thank you for sending Christ on our behalf it's in your son Jesus name